Welcome to A Slice of Orange on North Orange County Politics. Today, I'm very excited to introduce Zoot Velasco, the director of the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at Cal State Fullerton. Um, welcome, Zoot. Thanks for having me, Jody. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm excited to kind of learn more about um, what the Gianneschi Center is doing. Uh, I worked with Dr. Harry Gianneschi years and years ago when he first came to Cal State Fullerton and really revolutionized our fundraising. And I know that that's something that you're really passionate about. So tell us a little bit about how you got into fundraising. You know, you're showing your age there a little bit because people at the people around the center don't even know who he is. I have to explain to them. (laughs) I I was a student assistant. I got my start. Um, My my only real skill uh, as I started college was asking people for money because I had practiced so long (laughs) asking my parents for money. Uh, And so, yeah, it turned into a career until I switched over to teaching. Well, you know, I you probably know um, it's one of my favorite, you know, one of the things I tell my students, I teach a business soft skills class at Cal State Fullerton. And one of the things I tell them is to have a fact about yourself ready in networking for um, for when people ask you about yourself, have one fact ready that kind of blows everyone's stereotype of you, something that's that that goes against type. And one of my facts is that, you know, I was a break dancer for 12 years. Most people don't know that when they look at me. Sure, <laughs> and I right. always say, can't you tell by the looks of me? But uh, yeah, I started my career as a professional break dancer and from there became a mime and an actor and worked in television and film for 12 years. But my day job in all that time was teaching theater in juvenile halls and prisons. And when I moved to LA on the East Coast, Artists did not apply for grants. Uh, organizations applied for grants and then hired artists. Okay. But when I moved to LA, um, I found out that you had to, to get a grant, you had to go directly to the granting organizations and apply. It wasn't like on the East Coast where you just went through the organization. Mm-hmm. So I had to learn how to write a grant. And I worked very closely with staff at uh, the City of LA Cultural Affairs Department and City of Long Beach and Pasadena and um, the state of California. And I had some great administrators that I admired greatly who taught me how to write a grant and grant writing workshops. And I wrote my first grants and I guess I did well because uh, uh, Lucero Ariano, who um, was with the California Arts Council at the time, called me and said, yours was one of the best new grants we've gotten. Could you be a mentor to other people writing grants? Wow. And then I was asked to perform at their statewide conference just on, based on my grant writing. So uh-huh. it taught me I was good at something I didn't know I was right. good at. Right. And I ended up writing grants for myself and for others. And I think as an artist, I wrote 17 grants, 16 of them were funded. And so I uh, started working administratively as a grant writer for other artists. And then my first job was running a prison art program in which I wrote more grants. So grant writing was really my entry into Mm -hmm. fundraising and my entry into administration. That's how I went from being an artist to running organizations. And then how do you end up at the Gianneschi Center? Wow. So so this is my fourth, third, third career. Third career. So I had 12 years as an artist. I had okay. 23, 23 years running art centers. Okay. My last one, 
um, of any significance was the Muckenthaler. I did some interim directorships um, before and after that, but uh, I, I ran the Muckenthaler during the recession. We grew 400% during the recession. So I wrote a book about that. That led me to um, an MBA program, which I uh, Hope International's president was in my Rotary Club. He read my book and offered me a scholarship to their MBA program for nonprofits. So I did that. Wow. While I was doing that, someone in Long Beach read my book and asked me to start a nonprofit management course in Long Beach at Cal State Long Beach. Okay. So I did that, and then it moved to Cal Poly. And while I was teaching at, at Cal Poly in Cal State Long Beach, I was asked to be on the board of the Gene Center. I left the muck for a job running a larger museum, and I didn't enjoy the job at all. It was mm -hmm. very quickly, I didn't like it. So I left that job, and um, as I was leaving that job, I was asked by Susan, the director, if I would take over the GNSU because she wanted to become a full-time professor again and work on her research. Right. So um, she's still at, at Cal State Fullerton. It was very instrumental in me coming back full-time as the director. So uh, teaching there and running the center, I, I'm now full-time there. And so that's kind of how I ended up now in my third career as a professor and college yeah. person. <laughs> and, and, I love, and I love when people share their stories like that, because I think so often students get the idea that you have to know exactly what you're going to do with your life. And, you know, what are you going to be when you grow up has a single answer. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and most of us have a very windy path. And, and what we end up doing looks somewhat connected when you look back, but you would never see that, that end if you were looking forward. And I think it's frustrating for students who think we all had it figured out from the very beginning um, to realize that a lot of it is happenstance and happy accidents and the, the people that you meet along the way who identify something in you the potential that you may not have known you had. And I imagine when you were a break dancer that you might not have seen this as, as your career path. Yeah. A business professor at a, a, at a business college did not really seem to be in my career path at all when I was a break dancer. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And, and one thing that I love is when you talk about the importance of storytelling. And I think that that is um, not valued nearly as much um, as a skill. And I think it is, you know, the same thing that you talk about, you know, one fact that that can really excite people. I think that idea of storytelling is important. So how do you tell a story for like the Muckenthaler to turn things around? Because, you know, they were in debt when you took it over. And I mean, it really did explode under your leadership and became much more a community partner, I think. But but what is the importance of storytelling for an organization? Well, you're right, Jody. Storytelling is very important. And I teach this business soft skills class for people who are trying to get jobs and promote in the jobs they have. And I, you know, tell them how important networking is. And networking leads to uh, partnerships and partnerships leads to fundraising. And um, networking and partnerships all start with stories. And fundraising is all about relationship building. Getting promoted at your job is about relationship building. Getting hired is about relationship building and strengthening your networks. I mean, I got my current job because of my network 
um, that's how I ended up at the Gianneschi. Mm -hmm. So storytelling is a very important part of, of building relationships and building networks and building partnerships. And all of that for me, you know, I just did a research project this summer. Uh, it was really my first research project as a researcher. And um, I studied all of the organizations that grew from small to large during the last recession um, because we did it at the Muckenthaler. I wanted to right. see who else did it. And we studied 6,500 organizations in three counties. That was all the Inland Empire and Orange County. And when you take the Inland Empire and Orange County together, they look exactly like the United States in demographics, pretty much, right. pretty much verbatim, um, with the only difference being a slightly higher Asian American population. But in terms of rich and poor, Republican, Democrat, you know, um, yeah, it's a microcosm. It's, it's a microcosm. So there were 6,500 organizations, 29 organizations grew from small to large against the trend during the recession. Mm -hmm. And they all had some things in common. And the biggest thing they had in common, besides they all had dynamic leaders, was that they all uh, shared networking and strategic partnerships as their number one reason for growth. None of them grew because of traditional fundraising. Almost all of them grew on earned income streams. Wow. wow. But, but all of them grew because they forged really great community partnerships that led to contracts that led to fees that led mm -hmm. to earned income streams for them to make massive growth. So um, when you tell stories well, and when you can articulate who you are and what you have and what you need, you're much better to forge partnerships that will help you grow, help you get jobs, help you promote in jobs, help mm -hmm. you get money as a fundraiser, all of those things. So um, that's for me, the importance of storytelling. Yeah. And and what other research is coming out? Because I, I love that that we have a center for nonprofit research. I think that's really important. It's not often studied. Um, and so that's a great example of research that that you're concentrating on. Are there other research projects? Not right now, but I, I may elaborate more on the research project I did because I have a proposal out for some funders to look at studying organizations that are growing from small to large and investing in them. Because mm -hmm. once, a, once an organization gets over a million dollars, it's very easy for them to grow mm -hmm. because now they're large enough to have staff and an infrastructure to grow. But to get from 200,000, which is 75% of organizations are under $200,000. Right. So to get from 200,000 to a million dollars where all the money is, because 80% of all funding goes to organizations over a million dollars, which of which there's less than 20%. Sure. So to get from 200,000 to a million dollars is very difficult. And once you get over that threshold, it's very easy. So I'm trying to convince funders that they should, they should um, look at the research, find out, and they can hire me to do that, but they could do it on their own find out who is is growing from 200,000 towards a million dollars and investing in them and mm -hmm. helping them get over that hump that right. that would be very valuable in terms of the community because if they're if they're getting money through earned income streams which many of them are then they can really they can really grow the field in Orange County right. without necessarily growing funding like they're right. bringing more funding in through earned income without having for people to compete for dollars. Yes. 
Um, so I think that is really valuable and I'm trying to convince funders of that. But, you know, another thing that makes uh, stories important, uh, and I have a a G3X Conversations, one of the programs we do is G3X Conversations, which are kind of like little TED Talks. Mm -hmm. Um, We have one coming up in April with this guy named uh, Paul Paul Propster, I think I got his name right, who is a graduate of Cal State Fullerton and is the story architect for JPL NASA. Oh, wow. And he uses stories from the engineers to develop their strategic planning process. So oh, they wow. base their whole planning process on storytelling. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting and interesting for us to think of how we can, we always think about how stories can relate to our marketing and our fundraising, hopefully, but it can also relate to our planning too. Right. To our planning. Yeah. I think that's amazing. So what does being a connector mean to you? So, uh, I teach in my classes, uh, in my soft skills class, when I teach networking, I teach them about structural holes, the theory of structural holes, which is this theory that when, um, when there is a group here and a group here, let's say there are molecules, there's a group of, of atoms that form a molecule here and a molecule here. And if one forms the two together, they become stronger. Mm-hmm. And then those that bigger molecule becomes stronger and it's going to attract other molecules and it's going to grow. And that's how things evolve. So in a networking format, if there's a group of people here and a group of people here and they're trying to do something for the community, let's say Fullerton, mm-hmm. there's the Rotary Club over here and there's a, a PTA over here and there's a church group over here at EV Free. And they're all trying to do something for Fullerton. And one person joins all three groups. Yeah. Then those three groups become stronger than other groups in the city because right. they, they don't have to duplicate resources because one person's going to get them all on the same page by being the connector. And they'll they'll have uh, less duplication of services. So the more money will go out to the community. Mm-hmm. They'll be talking to each other and to other groups and then they're going to become more plugged in. And yeah. that person who is the connector will become the most powerful person in the groups because they are the ones that knows everything that's going on and they're the, right. the conduit. Right. So to be the connector is to fill the structural hole that strengthens everything you're part of and makes you the strongest link, which make, gives you power in the world. Right. And I think all of that, I mean, we always talk about being empowered, all of that being empowered is not a bad thing, having more power. Right. And, and then that person's the one that they ask to sit on city panels and city commissions. Right. And, you know, that person that gets that power then can use that to do amazing things for, for what they care about in the yes, community. Yes. And I've been that, that filler of holes and I've seen how it has impacted my work in my own life. Right. Yeah. And I, and I love the model, you know, Fullerton collaborative, the idea yeah. of, of nonprofits and churches and organizations and colleges, the, the, the service clubs all coming together. Um, you know, Placentia now has a collaborative and um, the, the same thing with uh, OC rep that, that does um, incredible work for the formerly incarcerated, um, you know, kind of trying to combine. So people aren't duplicating services and, and, for us, you know, even on a college campus, students get so overwhelmed with the silos of services that never talk to one another. 
And so having connectors all over is really, really helpful to kind of cut through that. So, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm part of uh, Fullerton and Placentia's collaborative and, and actually uh, Placentia used to have two collaboratives that were not as effective. Mm-hmm. And I was one of the people instrumental in m- merging them into one much more effective collaborate collaborative. Yeah. And yeah, they're doing great work over there now with Carrie Buck and, and yes. uh, yeah. 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 We just, a recent uh, episode highlighted their home share program of connecting uh, students with home insecurity with seniors with empty rooms and just amazing work that they're doing. Yeah. um, I was on the social innovation panel for Orange County Community Foundation and they were chosen as one of our winners and I got to be their pitch coach on that. So yeah, I'm I'm very familiar. That's fun. Yeah. So I, I love this concept that you have of lemonade planning. Yes. Of, of taking bad situations and, and clearly a pandemic has, you know, thrown everybody's plans for events and fundraising up in the air. Um, so tell us what lemonade planning is. Well, you know, I am of the mindset that there are no bad situations. There are bad things that happen, but the situations you make and, and um, I have found personally and I feel guilty for this, but personally, I have really enjoyed COVID um, for myself. And, and you know, obviously, if I had gotten sick or a close family member gotten sick, it would sure. be different. But um, I've used this opportunity because I, I, I'm always teaching students this mindset is everything. I've used this opportunity to, hey, how can I get better on Zoom? How can I get better online teaching? Because I've been online teaching since 2014. How can I do better? How can I learn more tricks and tips for being better on the internet? And um, how can I take advantage of not having a commute an hour each way every day and use that time? Right. And so for me, um, I've made the most of it because I planned early on. Um, I bought a house during COVID mm-hmm. when the rates were at their lowest and uh, and the market was uh, before the market sure. heated up again. So I took advantage of a little dip in the market. I um, I took advantage of a lot of things that COVID brought, investments and, you know, all kinds of things. And so how can I make the most of this uh, uh, crisis for other people, make it an opportunity for me? Because mm-hmm. it's that, you know, John F. Kennedy said the Chinese word for opportunity uh, for crisis is, is opportunity. And yes. I forget what he said, but you know what I'm yes. saying? Yes. Um, is there's always two sides of it, the yin and the yes. yang of it. So uh, for me, lemonade planning is this idea that you're not going to sit down and do a three-year plan. And if you have a three-year plan, it's going to be worthless now. Right. Because of, of COVID. Everything is different. Whatever you plan before, it's not going to be the same again. Right. So every organization, in my opinion, needs to create a one-year plan right now mm-hmm. and really should have been working on it already. But bef- you know, we're going to be out of COVID before you know it. It looks like- uh, That's the hope. Yeah, fairly quickly. Certainly right. by fall, we should be working. I mean, people are already acting like they're out of COVID since they got their vaccines. Right. I'm seeing I'm seeing so which, many more people on planes now and yeah. out in the community. And I went to which which my running friends tell me is is you know the the I think they call it celebrating at mile 24 or 25. It, of, yes, of exactly. I'm <laughs> exactly. not a runner, but I, I can understand wanting to be done at mile 24 or you know mile one. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, the, you have to wait to actually finish the race. It's a little scary. I was I was out meeting family members um, for dinner. We were trying to find a quiet outdoor place we could eat together sure. that would be safe. And we went to Cerritos because it was in the middle of everybody. And um, it, there were so many people out. We had to go to three restaurants before we found a safe place to eat. Right. Right. But, but uh, the point was, I'm getting off track. But it's the, coming. Yeah. The, the point light, was, it, the it's light is at the soon. end of the tunnel. And if you don't have a lemonade plan for the new normal, um, because you can't just go back and do what you did before, and right. you can't keep doing what you're doing now. So if you're not sitting down coming up with a new plan, then you're really going to be left out in the cold and have to wing everything. And that's never a good way to to be competitive by winging everything. Sure. So, sure. and, so and I certainly saw, you know, uh, and, and I sort of thought for business professors, especially that the opportunity for case studies of who really could pivot quickly um, and, and who just folded, you know, I look at some like soup plantation just really early on was like, we're out of business, we're done. Mm-hmm. And some other organizations, you know, in Brea, we had a restaurant, the Dillon, which immediately said, you can order from our wholesale um, restaurant suppliers, we want, you know, you can have eggs and toilet paper and all of these things. They immediately did a drive through breakfast for all kids in the city. And my husband and I had never gone to their restaurant and we are lifelong supporters. And every time we go, we say like, we are here in your outside dining because you immediately supported the community and you understood what was needed in that moment. And that's a business we want to support. Um, And I think the same is probably true for nonprofits. Yeah. I've seen restaurants that use this time to do remodeling that they would have had to close for and maybe add a back, backyard patio mm-hmm. that they would have wanted to do anyway. So yeah, I mean, some people have really taken this as an opportunity. And I've seen, uh, you know, the Muckenthaler is a great example. Farrell, the director there has done a great job of yeah. pivoting. Um, and I hate saying pivoting because it's so overused now, but I he know. did, he did pivot. And he, you know, and, and Marsha Judd, who is his lead artist, did a great job of kind of recommending these art kits. And yes. Stephanie, his, uh, his, um, uh, education director who, who I hired, I'll take some credit for Marcia and Stephanie, but, um, she did a great job of getting these art kits out and, and Farrell, this whole team just really did an amazing job of turning what was a terrible situation where they had right. to close down their art studios into art kits that could go out to families. And, and I know so many families that were picking them up and then they hosted the drive-in movies. Yeah, that yeah. was amazing. And his sculpture garden. And yeah, yeah he never yeah. missed an opportunity to do something. So yeah, right. kudos to Farrell for that. Great yeah. job. Right. Are there other organizations that, that you saw that were doing those things? Yes. Um, you know, there were arts organizations that did things online that, um, and, you know, what's probably going to happen when they go back to normal, the new normal, they'll probably continue to have some exhibits online. They'll Mm -hmm. have online conversations on Zoom. They'll have um, some concerts online. After the concert's over, you'll be able to access it by YouTube. So none of this is bad. I mean, um, certainly people our age and older were very reticent to do things online. Nobody's reticent anymore to do things online. 
Right. So the the fact that a 70 year old man's going to get up and pick up Zoom to look at something is no longer a, a question. Right. They're going to continue to do that because they know how to do it now. Right. So yeah, it's it's been really um, that is the best part for me is um, the number of events that I was able to go to from my home and not the commute and not getting home late and um, and and not in this time zone even. Um, it was yeah. when there was a, a, a Barney Frank, the former congressman, was doing an event sure. in, in Vermont and I emailed and I'm like, so we're talking about him uh, in my Congress class. Can we attend? And so it was us and, nice. and a little, a little men's Jewish group in Vermont and my students. And it was wonderful. As long as you, you know, do the time difference. Um, That's awesome. The, the number of events I have been able to go to and the tour groups I've gone to a lot of um, tours in Washington, D.C., where the the, the the tour guides who are now out of work are putting on Zoom events and um, that has been fun. So I do think that a lot of people have figured it out um, and it will be interesting to see what we keep um, when we go back to normal. Um, I certainly hope you, that a lot of events continue. You know, I think a lot of people think that once people go back, they're going to they're going to go back and never look at Zoom again. But the fact of the matter is people forget what it's like to commute. Right. And I I just went to pick up my vaccine shot last week and I reminded me of the traffic and yes. I wasn't in a hurry to get back in that traffic and anytime sure. I can avoid it, I'll be happy to. So I know a lot of people are going to continue to work from home many days a week, yes. um, whether yes. they, you know, and, and they, their bosses can't say you can't do this job from home anymore because right. it's been right. proven we've all they learned can. what's possible. <laughs> we've all learned. So, yes. Yeah. So everything is going to change and, and it's got to be. And, I, and I, so I have apologized to my friends many times who have been working at home and I thought they had it easy. I'm like, oh, this is difficult in a way yeah. I did not anticipate. Uh, well, you so. know, it's funny. We used to, um, we used to make fun of, of housewives and, you know, as being this, and that's the most difficult job in the world. And now everyone can see that now yes. that they have their kids home all the time. Yes, absolutely. We all understand how difficult I've been a house is. husband. Yes. I know exactly how difficult that yes. is. Yes. And teaching too. I think we all have appreciated the job of teachers when yes. uh, we, we see them trying to manage classrooms on Zoom. Um, yeah, lots of, lots of learning in the past year. So, um, tell me about your podcast. I love the name 501c3bs. Um, so how can people find out more about what you're doing and, and what you offer on that podcast? Well, I'll just tell you, first of all, the podcast's available wherever you get podcasts on sure. Alexa, on Apple, on Google, whatever it's there. So it's called, you said it's called 501c3bs. It's spelled with all the, you know, the way you would spell the tax code, the yes. tax code, yeah. all those parentheses. But the, the way I came up with it is um, I had been doing a different podcast on the arts that didn't do very well, but it was just a way for me to learn podcasting. It was a just kind of, I did it for myself and uh, it was called art in other places. And it was about all the places you, you don't expect to find art and art is there. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty cool. I would love to have if, to have gotten bigger, but it didn't really develop an audience. Um, I didn't really know marketing podcasts that well at the time, but I learned a lot through it all. 
And um, when I, I had written my second book, my first book was on the Muckenthaler's history that I wrote with the staff of the Muckenthaler. We wrote it And together. so what's the name of that? Because I know, you know, we, we have a big audience in Fullerton who yeah, love well, the Muck. It's one of those Arcadia history books, and it's called the Muckenthaler Cultural Center. So Great. you can see the history of it from the Arcadia book. So we, the staff, wrote it, and I led the writing of it. And then my second book was on nonprofit management, and it was it was basically on how you uh, take an organization that's not doing well and you sw- turn it around through planning and through other things. And it's called The First 100 Days Leading Small Nonprofits Out of the Wilderness, and that's mm-hmm. on Amazon. Um, so I, I'd finished that book. I was considering writing a third book because I enjoyed the process of writing nonfiction books. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and I was teaching at that point. And I thought, well, you know, if I was going to write a third book, I'd want it to be something that's not out there. And one of the ideas I had was writing a book on the mythology of nonprofits and how, how much mythology there is in our industry where people think something is correct because they've heard it, but right. it's totally not the right thing right. to do. Like, oh, you know, we should have a big gala. I think that's the way to make a lot of money. Right. And that's probably the worst way to make money if that's your goal. And so um, I Especially thought, when you... you get to the gala and you see yeah. everyone you already know. Yes. And even the word nonprofit is mythology because people don't understand what it means. They think our goal in life is not to make a profit. And so I thought there's so many great myths that could be funny to write about in our industry. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I started out writing a funny book about nonprofit myths called 501c3 BS. And I thought, you know, this would lend itself much better to a podcast. And this would be a podcast I think would take off. And I could get really great guests to speak about their mythology. So that's what I did. And it it did fairly well, pretty quickly. Um, You know, it was getting some interest pretty quickly, but in the third year COVID started, that was our, uh, no, that was our fourth season. Sorry. In our fourth season, COVID started and we did a couple of podcasts, one on COVID and one on AB5, which is the new law for contract labor versus, which nobody understood and was blowing up the internet with questions. Right. So we did one with the Public Law Center Santa Ana on AB5, and we did one on COVID with all the funders who are funding the COVID relief and um, and the grant makers from, from the government. And those two blew up. They mm. really went viral. And that gave us a much bigger audience. And sure. now we're, I think, in the top 200 of nonprofit podcasts nationwide. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. And, and for anyone years. who doesn't know, the, the, the reference 501c3 is the tax code for, for yes. you know, nonprofit charities. And anyone who files their taxes for charitable gifts might know that, you know, that's what you're looking at. But yeah, really interesting. And yeah, so I think everybody knows what the days? BS part is about. <laughs> yes, I, I, I'm assuming they can follow the BS part. Yeah. So so what what are you covering these days? So our fifth season just started. We did a couple on the new COVID grants that are that have come out. Mm-hmm. We always, every season, we always kind of bring back our top 10 list of the top 10 most requested or most listened to. Um, so we're, we're doing a couple of those. We just did one on advocacy. Um, mm-hmm. We have the research project I did last summer. We did 
we released as a podcast at the end of the last season. So we're going to okay. replay that. And then I'm going to play the interviews I did um, on the research end with the with the CEOs of those organizations that were stars oh, during good. the recession. And um, they're really fascinating interviews. I'm, I'm just doing a couple of them. I'm going to do uh, uh, four, four of the ones that were really things that that anybody could relate to and take something from. Uh, so Ann Olin from Charitable Ventures is one. Um, uh, Charitable Ventures grew the largest of any organization during the recession. They went wow. from about 150,000 to I think there's 7 million a year today. Amazing. Yeah. And she is a she is a brilliant entrepreneur and um, and genius in our industry, really. So Ann Olin's one. We've we're having one with Solidarity from right here in Fullerton with Tommy mm-hmm. Nixon, and um, and Kevin Choi. Uh, they're one of our recession stars. Uh, we have one with a group from the Inland Empire. Uh, it's a counseling group that grew tremendously. And um, and Robert Santana from the Boys and Girls Club of of uh, the Orange Coast, um, Santa Ana area, and other okay. surrounding environments, and um, so they're they're going to talk about some of the neat things that they've done. We are going to replace some of our leadership series. Then we have some new podcasts on leadership, including Ken Wilcox, who wrote a book on leadership. Right. Um, he was the CEO of the Silicon Valley Bank. And started a, a joint venture in China. So he's, he's going to talk about that. It's really interesting stuff coming up from people that have a lot to teach us about our industry and things that right. relate to our industry. Right. That's great. Really good. So um, I ask the same questions to everybody at the end of the show. Um, what's the best advice you've ever gotten? Wow. So marriage advice. <laughs> the first one I think of is my marriage advice. Sure. The best marriage advice I ever got was from my ex-boss at the time I got married. When he found out I was getting married, he goes, uh, sit down. I'm going to give you a piece of advice, you know, and and he's a, a really cool older African-American man who kind of worked his way up from nothing, you know, um, yeah. pull yourself up from the bootstraps kind of guy. And he said, sit down. Let me tell you something. He said, people will tell you marriage is 50-50. It's not. Marriage is 100 and zero. If you're not willing to give 100% and get nothing in return, you have no business getting married. Because sometimes you're going to have to do that. And right. sometimes she's right. going to have to do that. And if you know, sometimes you don't have 50% to give. Yeah. And you, you have to stay together anyway. Right. And that was the best marriage advice I ever got, I think. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So that's the first one to jump to mind. In terms of professional advice, uh, I had a, a ro- ro- Rotary Club president uh, when I first joined Rotary named uh, Tom. Oh, shoot. I'm blanking on Tom's last name, but he used to be president of, of Fullerton Community Bank before it became Opus Bank. Tom Meyer. And Tom Meyer told me once, he said, you know, Zoot, you can always figure out a way to say yes. And I thought about that. And it brought me back to my um, improv training when I was in theater improv with Second City, where you say yes and, you know, when when you want the scene to continue, you say yes and. And I thought there is always a way to say Yes, and if you do this for me, I will do this for you. Right. You don't have to make it so open-ended that um, you say, yes, I'm going to do everything for you and you have to do nothing. Right. You make it a real partnership by saying, yes, I will do this if you can do this also. And you 
make them have a little skin in the game mm -hmm. so that they're invested in it. And then you can pretty much do anything for anybody with a little partnership. I like so I, I find that to be great. I never, I, I don't think you ever have to say no. You can always say yes. And like people at the, at the Muckenthaler used to call me, I'd say I get about seven to 10 calls a week wanting people wanting to use the space for free. You know, sure. oh, let me bring my dance group there. Let me do a sure. talk there, blah, blah, blah. So I used to say, yes, we can do that. If you're willing to fill out a proposal, we take a certain amount of proposals every year for free events okay. and we'll run it in front of our committee. And if you're willing to do that, you could take a chance to, to mm -hmm. have a free event there. You know, we need to know the particulars and the information. Will it fit with our schedule? Sure. And I would lay that out. And one person a year would apply and we would give them the free event. Of course. Sure. But, um, you know, most people would never follow up because they wanted me to do everything. Right. They didn't want, they want to do the anywhere. yes. They do not want the and. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I found that I don't have to say no. I can say yes. Uh -huh. If you'll do something also, we can do this together. Yeah. I like that. I like that. So what's a, a book that you like to recommend to people? I have three books I recommend to all of my students and staff. Okay. They're books that changed my life. Okay. In terms of spirituality, it's The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. I think Excellent. everyone should read The Prophet. It is the way I describe it to people is that it's all the all the wisdom of the universe distilled into one poem. Yeah. <laughs> um in terms of finance, Personal Finance for Dummies by Eric Tyson changed my life. I was I didn't grow up knowing personal finance and mm -hmm. I was $20,000 in debt. I read his book and I was 20,000 in the bank buying my first house within two years after reading that book. Wow. So it changed my life. And yeah. it's a dummies book. You can make fun of me for it, but it worked. No, no. Yeah. Um, the third book is uh, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. The first self-help book and still the best. Right. And it's talk amazing. about networking. There's nothing better. Right. Than, than his book. So there, those yeah. are the three books that changed three my life. Three great books. Good, good, good. Yeah. And then is there a hopeful message you can share with our listeners? Everything is about mindset. Everything should be a hopeful message. Everything in your life, even when bad things happen. Um, I'm kind of a, a, I'm a Taoist. So I believe in the philosophy that there is nothing good and bad in this world. They are flip sides of the same coin. Mm. And you have to look for the positive side and not dwell on the negative side because there's going to be one in everything. Sure, sure. And, uh, and who should we talk to next? Who's out there in North Orange County Ooh. that I should meet? Well, the connector. Oh my gosh! So my favorite people in our in our sector, or are you talking about in Fullerton, or are you talking about in the nonprofit sector or in the arts? Because those are Either. three different, yeah. three different things. Um, I think in in terms of Fullerton, a very interesting couple, power couple, is Dan and Susan Alween. Dan Alween is the past president of the Fullerton Rotary Club, which I will be president of next year. And he's our district governor elect for the district. Okay. He's very involved. Um, he's the one who came up with the idea for the mass project when uh, COVID started. They had they they came right. up with a way to make masks for St. Jude's and all the hospitals. Yeah. Yes. And they motivated 
all of Rotary to make masks. And we had thousands of people making hundreds of thousands of masks. Right. And his wife, Susan Alween, runs Assured Audiovisual. She's an HR professional. She escaped Cambodia as a child, has an amazing story. Wow. And uh, Dan and Dan and Susan Alween, I think, are one of the most interesting power couples in Fullerton in terms of being connectors. I love um, that. In terms of the nonprofit realm, uh, Todd Hansen and Shelley Haas at the Orange County Community Foundation are both geniuses and amazing people. Anne Olin, as I mentioned, Victoria Torres, who also has a podcast called The Nonprofit Life um, and works at Sam Welly Foundation in Anaheim. She's kind of a real connector in Anaheim. Uh, I could go on and on, but the, those are some top people to think of mm -hmm. in that sector. Um, oh, Solidarity, both Fullerton and nonprofits. I mean, Kevin Choi at Solidarity, he's shy, but if you can talk to him out <laughs> of his out of his cave, he's an amazing guy that's done amazing things. Good, um, good. Solidarity's doing amazing things. So, uh, oh, oh, Christian Esteban, Hoya Scholars. Yes, he's amazing on my person. list. Amazing person. He's doing great um, things. And, and he he's one of the first to really plug into the internet during COVID in a big way. And he pivoted huge with his organization in COVID and had one of the most successful online fundraisers I've seen. Mm -hmm. And he had kids produce it. His students yeah. helped produce it. So, yeah, storytelling and, and yeah, all of that. Yeah, he's Christian is amazing. And Farrell, I think Farrell um, or anyone from his staff at the Muck would be interesting and great. Sure. Sure. Yeah, they've done an amazing job. Rick Stein at, at Arts OC has done an amazing job. So there you go. I give you a whole list. I love it. I love it. Yeah. It, it, you know, I, I have this short window between elections where I can dive into nonprofits and community partners and yeah, before we get back to all the candidates and, and the elections. So thank you so much. I really uh, appreciate you coming on the show and, and spending some time with us. It's my pleasure. I'm always happy to be here. Thank you. Me.